0: Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I marvel. Listening to all these testimonies of how you reached into our lives and made yourself known. How you overcame our resistance, our cynicism, our false gods. How your love displayed on Jesus' cross reshaped our hearts. We ask you to continue gathering your people everywhere in the world. Use your word today to that end. Spirit of God, remove now every obstacle to faith and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The word of the Lord. If you have seen The Force Awakens, the first installment in the Star Wars trilogy with Rey Skywalker as the main character, you know that the audience is introduced to her while she's scavenging so she can exchange her winnings for food. It all seems quite a simple small town lifestyle, which of course we know that Rey lives in a galaxy far, far away. But as you continue watching, and because we have lots of background on the scale of the Star Wars saga, we know that her simple life is to be understood as a part of the larger epic war between the First Order, the oppressive dark rule of Palpatine, and the Resistance, those who seek a more just order. All that to say that the stakes are high in the struggle in which ray finds herself in the middle of at the center of and in a similar way and perhaps this is part of the global appeal to for star wars stories like star wars the stakes are high in every single person's lives christian or not but we can live our lives as if the the main thing going on was scavenging for our next meal as christians we can live as if the main thing was our personal piety the things that we should or should not do in following jesus But if you read the Bible, if we dare to open up this book, we read of nations, Egypt, Tyre, Babylon, Assyria, Israel, Greece. We read of dragons and demons. We read of councils in heaven and kings on earth. We read of battles and ultimate confrontations. We read of the fate of billions upon billions of people. Lots more is going on in Scripture than our personal piety. There's a clash of kingdoms. God's kingdom clashes with the world's power structures. God's kingdom clashes with the world's power structures. When Jesus instructs his disciples on how to pray, what does he say to them? He says to them, you should pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus puts us at the center of the struggle of the ages. And by the center, I don't mean that this is about us. No, we're not the most important part of the story, although we do matter. But at the center, I mean that he's involving us in this struggle. There are kingdoms, powers, power structures in place that must give way to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is being established even now. But it doesn't advance through the usual power moves, political, military, or economic. It doesn't advance through revolution. Rather, it advances through the proclamation of a message. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. That's the message. And as that message is proclaimed, God's kingdom is established. As that God's kingdom is established, those in power are humbled and weakened, and they don't like it. Which is why I say God's kingdom clashes with the world's power structures. And it's important for you and I to be aware of this. To be aware of this larger orchestral symphony. So that we don't think that we're just playing our little instruments, our little flute in a closet somewhere. Or to go back to the first image. We're not just scavenging for our next meal. A new world is in the making. This is what the book of Acts is all about. Did you know that? This is what we're exploring as we do this series that we're entitling Against All Odds, How the Name of Jesus Spreads. It's also part of why we're showing you these different testimonies of how the name of Jesus spread into the lives of all these different people. So today we're going to look at a few things about the establishment of God's kingdom. First, we're going to look at how the establishment of God's people infuriates those in power it infuriates those in power. Look at chapter 12, verse 1 again. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. While wonderful things are going on for the church in Antioch, which is what we looked at last week, horrible things are happening for the church in Jerusalem. Now, last week, we read that wonderful note in chapter 11, verse 21 that said, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And we say that what matters most in this spread of Jesus' name is that the Lord's hand be upon his people. Now, what does the Lord's hand do? Oh, it does all kinds of things. The Lord's hand brings unity among his people, in protection, and deliverance. It fulfills God's purposes. God's hand does what God's mouth says. It's God's power in action to fulfill God's purposes. And it's why the church in Antioch saw incredible things happening and people turning to the Lord because his hand was with them. But then as soon as we open chapter 12, we see that there's another hand at work literally chapter 12 verse 1 here's what the verse says it was about this time that king herod lay hands on some from the church to persecute them so do you see this clash of kingdoms on the one hand god has his hand on his people in antioch and amazing things are happening and then at the same time some 300 miles to the south king herod is laying hands on the people some of the people from the church in jerusalem to harm them now why would herod do this well first of all we need to keep our herod straight because there are all kinds of herods there this is herod agrippa the first he's the grandson of herod the great who lived uh just at the turn of the first century in the gospels we read of herod antipas the uncle of this guy and then in chapter 25 of acts we read of herod agrippa the second his son. So there's all kinds of Herods. But this one in chapter 12 had great relations with the Jews and with the Romans. So he was liked by his subjects and by his countrymen. And he was also liked by the people who put him in charge. Now, when Herod had James killed, the Jews liked it they gave their approval, which gave him farther impetus to now go, go after Peter. So it was the approval of his fellow Jews that was motivating his actions. Now, by this point in Acts 12, the church in Jerusalem has been going for some 10 or so years. So the church has been growing. And at first, it was seen as a Jewish sect. It was Jews following a Jewish Messiah. So the, the early Christians were Jewish by birth and by lifestyle, except that they worshiped Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus, the son of Joseph. But there was friction. From the very beginning, even from with, within the Jewish people, because if you recall, during uh, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus confronted and was confronted by the Jewish authorities, um, so that they, colli- uh, colluding with the Romans, put him to death. But it didn't just start during his ministry back when he was born. There was also a clash of kingdoms. You recall that when Herod learns that there's this baby that was born king of the Jews, he wants to do away with him. Remember, there were these kings from the east, and they came looking for the child that was born king of the jews and uh when herod hears about this he he wants to find out where the child is so that he can get rid of him but unable to do that what does he do he orders that all the two-year-old boys in bethlehem or under be put to death and so there's there's this clash from the very beginning all that to say that as the jesus movement is growing uh, opposition from the jewish authorities is escalating culminating with The first apostle, the first of the 12, James, the son of Zebedee, brother to John, being executed. Now, again, why would Herod do this? Well, think about it. He's King Herod. King Herod. What would the Christians have been announcing for over 10 years in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas now? That there's a new king, a true king, and not just a king of the Jews, but of the whole world world the christians were not advocating for revolution but their lifestyle and their worship and their witness to jesus did present a strong critique of the jewish establishment stephen had already been put to death because of his criticism of the jerusalem temple and its leadership but instead of dying down the movement picked up speed and strength so that now herod finds it in his best interest with the jews and with the romans to go for the top to go for the apostles. And so that's what he does. Now, you may be here thinking, why did I wake up early on a Sunday morning to hear all this stuff about Herod? Here's why. The Christian message is not just a message that says, live in a new way. The Christian message says, there's a new king in the world and in your life. And that message is always going to be unsettling, if not infuriating to those in power you can't have two kings one must be in service of the other you can't have two centers of power one must bow to the other you can't have two visions for what makes the world work one's going to be right the other one's going to be wrong And so whether the vision is the Jerusalem temple as the place where heaven and earth meet, or the Roman peace, La Pax Romana, as the apex of civilization, or the intellectualism of the 18th century enlightenment in Europe or in America, or whether it's the market economy, which, you know, the God that makes the world go round, or the right-wing or left-wing politics of 21st century America, The power structures of any day and any culture are going to be threatened by the one who says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is building. He's establishing his kingdom all around the earth. And that kingdom crashes, clashes with those who love power. But the establishment of that kingdom also puts God's people at risk. It infuriates those in power, but it also puts God's people at risk. Look at verse 2. He, Herod, had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, let's take a short digression. In the Gospel of Mark, in the midsection of the Gospel, it is revealed to Peter that Jesus, this rabbi they've been hanging out with, is the Christ, God's anointed and shortly after that revelation, Jesus begins to predict his death to his disciples. He does it three times. He does it in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and each time, each prediction becomes more and more specific. Let's read the one in chapter 10. Here's what he says to them. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So this whole section of Mark's gospel focuses on the disciples' failure to see, to understand the nature of discipleship, the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. When they understand, begin to understand that he is the Christ, the Messiah for them this has kingly connotations and rightly so because the meaning for for this messiah for them was filled out by the hebrew scriptures mainly the passages about king david and his glory and yet as soon as this revelation is made jesus is insistent on his disciples understanding that this king was headed for a clash with his own people and they would mock him and flog him and kill him They needed to wrestle with what it means to follow a rejected king. Nobody likes following a rejected king, but they still didn't get it. Three times, though, he told them until after his resurrection. And so in the middle of Mark's gospel, right after the third prediction of his death, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus with a request. And so they come and they say to him, Master, we want you to do something for us. Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, we want you to grant for one of us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Somehow, they managed to miss the three predictions of his death. Like this happened right after he gives them the third prediction. He's been talking to them about death, death, death. That's what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. But in their minds, Messiah equals glory. And so they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we have this all figured out. We want you to grant for one of us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Now, if I know siblings at all, these two guys are siblings. If I know them at all, James and John had a huge fight prior to coming to Jesus over which of them got to be on the right and which on the left. You know, they they don't share any of this with Jesus because they have to show a united front. You know, uh, I've learned of deals that my children make with each other uh, only years later. It's like, wait, what? You decided what? But you know, these things happen. And so they come to him with this request, you know, on your right, on your left, in your glory. And Jesus answers them and says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with a baptism that I'm baptized with? And self-assured, they say, we can. <laughs> and he says to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with a baptism I'm baptized with. But who sits on my right or my left is not for me to grant. What Jesus is saying to them is, you're thinking of glory. I know what's coming is suffering. You do not want to be on my right or my left when I'm enthroned with a crown of thorns on a cross. But ironically, you will drink from the cup I drink. So this is all in Mark. Now we're back in Acts. And it's been 10 years or so since Jesus died. And we read, Herod had James the brother of John put to death with the sword. James, with all his ideas of glory, drank the cup, the cup of suffering. The 12 are not the 12 anymore. When Judas killed himself, they replaced him with Matthias. So they still had the 12. They don't keep doing that. Now James is gone, and the 12 are no longer the 12. They had fulfilled their purpose, they would continue to fulfill the purpose, those who would remain still alive. And yet the name of Jesus continues to spread independent of the 12. But you see, the establishment of God's kingdom puts God's people at risk. Why? Because we follow a rejected king. We follow a rejected king. Sometimes we forget this. Jesus prepared his disciples. In the gospel of John, he says to them, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Sometimes people say, I like Christ, but not Christians. When they say that, they don't really know Jesus. People say, I, I like Jesus, I just don't like the church. Mm. You don't really know him if you say that. Now, trust me, there's plenty not to like about Christians. Okay, Uh, We're a mess, right? So to deny that would be neither truthful nor profitable. I mean, Christians can be judgmental, proud, petty, but so can be Muslims and Hindus and atheists. It's a human problem. But when people say they like Christ but not Christians, they don't really know that Jesus is not likable in the way that we use that word. He is good, but he is fierce. He is good, but we are not. And therein lies our problem. Because he is light, and we are darkness, but we think we're light. I mean, I watch shows. I watch movies. It's all over in our culture. The light within, the light within, the light within. And yet Jesus says, no, you are in darkness. You live in darkness. And until we are accept his diagnosis of us and that he alone can give us light we're gonna clash with him mr rogers is likable jesus christ exposes our evil and our folly and no one likes to be proved a fool so when you draw fire for bearing the name christian don't be surprised Don't be surprised. Jesus warned us. He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Herod went for the top. He went for the apostles. He figured, if I can strike the leaders, the sheep will be scattered. He wanted to stamp out the name of Jesus. He wants him gone. How will he do that? By scattering his followers and scaring them into silence. Listen, today there's incredible social pressure on Christians to be silent about Christ. This may be the the biggest form of persecution in our country. And it is no small thing. There are whole generations being raised uh, with a desire, with a craving for likes, 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 likes. And the result can be that we retreat into silence when it comes to Jesus. I see it in my own life. Do you see it in yours? Yeah, it's just not culturally acceptable. You know, our culture is tolerant of all kinds of things except Christianity, And so we need to know that, yes, our message is love, but it's not just a message of love. The message is also, there is a new king in the world and in your life. And many people will not like it. And so we're scattered because our commitments to God's people are low. And we are scared into silence because we want to be liked. And the result of that is that the name of Jesus is stamped out. Church, we must speak up. We must speak up. And you know, I am, I'm encouraged by the boldness in a number of you. As I get to know you, you you're an encouragement because you're bold about the name of Christ. You're not afraid. And we need you. And it, uh, it inspires us and it helps our faith to see your boldness because that's what we're praying for, for the whole church. You know, in our live group, we had some discussions about just what it means and what it takes to share the name of Christ. Christ. We need each other. And we're going to be bold in making him known. Because the establishment of his kingdom puts God's people at risk. But also, and finally, it calls for earnest prayer. The establishment of God's people calls for earnest prayer. Look at verse 3. When he, Herod, saw that this met with approval among the Jews, putting James to death, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So after he has James killed and his own people like it, Herod says, hey, let's keep this thing going. I'm going after Peter now. And he arrests him right during Passover. Now, question for you. Who else was arrested during Passover? Yeah, the Savior, Jesus Christ. He had told them, right? A student is not above his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also and here it's happening a number of years later and now peter is arrested during passover and again we see a clash of kingdoms there's a clash of kingdoms here as well there were a number of anti-roman anti-rome movements in the first century some of them staged revolts and fought back with the sword the zealots was one such group others Uh, pushed forward their interests by cozying up to the political elite the Sadducees were one such group others fought for their own interests by retreat so they retreated from public and civic life so they would not be contaminated by the larger culture the communities at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found were one such group so there were all these different ways that groups rose up to fight against the Roman kingdom Revolt. Retreat. Political power. And yet none of these ways is how Jesus' disciples fight. None of them. But they do fight back. How do they fight back? By prayer. Earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. I mean, think about this. Jesus is the most powerful human being ever to exist. No one has had the influence that Jesus has had to this day. And yet the main one of the main weapons that he gives his followers is prayer going into a closet getting together in a room and calling out to god earnestly what does that say about god's kingdom how do the kingdoms of this world jockey for power lots of things they use missiles they use put downs on social media they hold political summits They advance party agendas through legislation. They monopolize markets. They proliferate different ideologies in university classrooms. On and on it goes. Listen, all of us right here participate in this system because we are citizens of this world. But here's the question. What does it say about God's God's kingdom? One of the main weapons he gives his followers is prayer prayer. You know what it says? Our power does not come from us. Peter's in prison. The church is praying. The church is earnestly praying. Our power does not come from us. Listen, prayer is earnest, but it is receptive. And I know, because I know many of you are prayer people, and you know what I'm talking about. It is receptive. You are begging God, but it's receptive. You're begging the Father for answers, for healing, for unbelief to crumble, for faith to rise. You're begging Jesus. We're begging Jesus to turn idolaters into God lovers, inward Christians into evangelists, fearful bunnies into bold lions. We're begging the Holy Spirit to ignite a fire in our midst, to blow like a mighty wind, to give us supernatural eloquence and clarity. We're earnestly asking for these things, but answering remains the prerogative of God. We do not command our God to do anything. We entreat him. We come to him dead serious, but we also come with a few words because we are servants. And we come to him also as friends, burying our hearts and our sleeves. We come to him as dearly loved children, tugging at his shirt until he answers us, right? But after we've done all that tugging and all that entreating and all that begging, we know, we know that the answers, the power remains with him. It remains with him, which is what makes it his kingdom. And sometimes, James is put to death with the sword. And other times, Peter is miraculously rescued, as we will see next week. But do you see, church? There's a clash of kingdoms here because the weapons that our God has given us are not the weapons of this world. I love that song we sang, praise Praise is my weapon, the song says. Yes, praise. What kind of weapon is that? Prayer. What kind of weapon is that? It's a different kingdom. So church, how are you living your life? Are you simply scavenging for the next meal? Or do you live with an awareness that you are right at the center of, of the clash of kingdoms it's an epic scale it's an epic scale and you're at the center not because this is about you in the main but because jesus is at the center and you are in him but this clash of kingdoms infuriates those in worldly power and oftentimes puts god's people at risk which means we're going to be tempted to retreat in silence but we must speak up. We must speak up. It's how the name of Jesus spreads. Jesus was crucified for you. That's the message. That's the message. It's in that message that God's kingdom is established. And he does what only he can do. We must speak up. You know, sometimes it's better when we don't say anything. About something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in those awkward situations where you shouldn't have said something, you know, we ruin ruined someone's surprise birthday party because we tell the birthday person, see you at the party. It's like, oh shoot, no. Or we tell someone congratulations, but they're not pregnant. You know, last year I asked someone if she was someone's mom, but they were similar ages. And I was like, what's wrong with you, John? What's, oh, shut up, just shut up sometimes it's better if we don't say anything but not when it comes to jesus we speak his name his kingdom comes we speak his name his kingdom comes can we say it together we speak his name his kingdom comes yes this is what happens listen herod herod wanted to stamp out the name of jesus he wanted it gone and yet whose name has gone down in history as the greatest name of all time. Herod's? Herod's? We're like uh Herod who again? Herod Agrippa the first, Herod Agrippa the second, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. We're like Herod whom? But Jesus? Jesus, the name Jesus was one of the most common names in first century Palestine. Did you know that? Top ten names for boys. But today. Today, there's only one Jesus who is known all over the world and worshiped in heaven and on earth. And his kingdom will never end. Do you worship him? Are you in his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what we see in the book of Acts, that the name of Jesus spreads against all odds against opposition it's amazing what you lord jesus can do what you do in each one of our lives thank you for the testimonies of baptism we heard today thank you for kuhn and grace sharing with us how you overcame their resistance their cynicism their pride their false gods their uh upbringing and traditions that led them to an empty place Oh, yes, Lord, you overcome all of our obstacles to faith and love. You overcome them. I pray that today we would embrace you. I pray that we would embrace the difference and the clash in kingdoms as you establish yours, but not with the weapons of flesh and blood that the world fights with. Oh, no, praise is our weapon. Prayer is our weapon. And yet, Lord, in that, we confess and acknowledge that the power is not with us. That all the answers remain with you. That you will build your kingdom around the world. And all we do is proclaim the message. Jesus was crucified for you. For me. Oh, King of Kings, oh Lord of Lords, we bow to you. Forgive us our sin. Forgive us when we have other visions for what would make the world a great place. Forgive us for when we have other centers of power. Forgive us for when we have other kings. Oh, no, we laid them at the cross. And we confess that you alone, King Jesus, are the King of Kings. We love you. We worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.